Well, welcome to the second of our three podcasts on rectal cancer here at St. Mark's. And uh, I've got uh, our guest, Professor John Northover, uh, who was on the staff until fairly recently, uh, talking about the historical aspects. And in the last episode, we heard about the battle royal between uh, Lockhart Mummery and Ernest Miles concerning uh, the perineal excision of the rectum on the one hand and the abdominoperineal excision of the rectum on the other and the controversy that, that flowed from those two operations. And we're going to pick up the story, John, from that point. Um, and what, what happened and who came in on the scene uh, from that point onwards? Well, as I said in the previous episode, um, Lockhart Mummery continued with perineal excision um, right up until he retired in 1934, which was uh, several decades after Ernest Miles had told the world about the radical excision that he was doing. But very interestingly, in the mid-1920s, a new surgeon joined the staff at St Mark's who had trained under Lockhart Mummery. He knew precisely how to do the perineal excision. And in fact, if we um, uh, look at the films that we have of both Lockhart Mummery and Gabriel operating, the bottom end uh, dissection is exactly the same, except that um, uh, Gabriel's uh, film is in colour. But uh, the actual surgery looks the same. Anyway... Um, the perineal excision was the only operation available at St Mark's at the time that William Gabriel joined the staff. He's known affectionately, by the way, by everybody at St Mark's as the arse angel. Um, and he did something which I think um, can be seen as rather courageous. He was a new consultant. He's the new kid on the block. And the senior surgeon is telling everybody that they should be doing perineal excision still. But he saw that Miles had the right idea and the wind was blowing with Miles. Um, but he was still very concerned about the mortality of the operation. And he ascribed that mortality to the abdominal incursion. It was still seen to be a relatively dangerous thing to go into the abdomen. And so what he did was to change the emphasis of the uh, abdominoperineal excision. Whereas with Miles, it was predominantly an abdominal operation and following the dissection within the abdomen, he pushed the bowel into the pelvis and then came up perineally to finish. Um, Gabriel did it the other way round um, and called it a perineo-abdominal excision of the rectum. I have to say, when I first started at St Mark's and didn't really know very much about why Gabriel was doing this, I thought that he was being a relatively cheeky boy, and was changing the name of the operation simply to make it look as though it was a St Mark's procedure. But that's very cynical of me. In fact, he did have a very good reason. So he changed radical rectal excision from being predominantly an abdominal operation to being predominantly a perineal operation. So he would do the same perineal dissection uh, that he was familiar with with uh, Lockhart Mummery, um, and he would dissect all the way up into the pelvic cavity and push the bowel up into the pelvis and then do a relatively rapid abdominal operation to um, uh, mobilise the sigmoid, bring it out through an opening in the abdominal wall, amputate the bowel and make a colostomy. So that way he thought he was decreasing the chance that the patient would die from a major abdominal incursion. 
but it never caught on. And the reason for that was that he was, as he was developing that operation, um, the mortality rate for what has come to be known as Miles operation was getting down to a level at which most surgeons were prepared to perform it. They hadn't been for the first 20 years, but they were beginning to do it in greater numbers. And therefore, the Gabriel operation disappeared. So we then got um, uh, Miles' operation now holding sway. Uh, who came on the scene after that um, to, you know, to contribute to uh, rectal cancer surgery worldwide? Well, it's worth remembering that surgeons assumed that the uh, lymphatic spread from rectal cancer was radial. Yeah, it was going out in all directions, yeah. rather the same as Halsted had shown in the uh, last decade of the 19th century was the case for breast cancer. And so the idea that you could do anything other than take out the whole rectum for even a high rectal cancer, even sigmoid cancer, um, was anathema. It, it just wasn't accepted. Um, and perhaps the next important development was the Hartman's operation. And Hartman, <clears throat> in the early 1930s, uh, did an abdominal procedure in which he mobilised the rectum all the way down to the pelvic floor. So he was effectively taking out the whole rectum the way you did for an abdominoperineal excision, but dividing the uh, rectum right down at the pelvic floor, leaving effectively only leaving the anal canal behind, um, and then bringing out a colostomy. Um, and variants of, uh, of his operation, of course, still exist today, but it's done in a different way and for different reasons. So that was an abdominal operation uh, seeking to avoid taking the anus out, but of course still having a colostomy. But the, the next, we have to say it, courageous step was to suggest that you can do an abdominal resection and join the ends back together again. An extraordinary and bold move for a surgeon at that time. Well, it was seen as heresy when it was first described by Claude Dixon from the Mayo Clinic, and he published his, uh, again, seminal paper in 1938. Um, but he wasn't doing this without reasonable evidence. He'd been doing this operation for high rectal and sigmoid cancers and doing sufficient mobilisation that he was able to make a sutured anastomosis uh, that wasn't under tension. Um, and usually making a proximal colostomy to give the anastomosis a chance to heal uh, with it, without leaking. Um, and this was seen to be heretical. Um, most surgeons thought that if you're going to treat rectal cancer, you have to take the anus out, basically. In other words, the whole rectum and the anus had to come out with it. <clears throat> and it took really a long time for surgeons uh, to adopt this. And in fact... Uh, at St. Mark's, um, the crossover point when uh, it was 50% abdominoperineal excision and 50% anterior resection wasn't until 1972, which is a couple of years after I left medical school. So it's right up into my lifetime. Yeah. Uh, and today, of course, um, the anterior resection rate is well up into the 80s for most surgeons. Um, so that was an important... And step. Do, do you think Claude Dixon got that idea through Hartman's work? Because in a sense, Hartman was the first one to, to do all from above and leave the anus. And do you think, is that where Claude Dixon 
developed his idea well, th- from. There is a certain logic to it, isn't mm. it? But he wasn't dissecting into the deep pelvis. Um, this this was intraperitoneal. Right, much higher up. So what and we would call rectosigmoid tumours yeah, probably yeah. today. And, and there's some very elegant drawings in his 1938 paper showing precisely what the dissection consisted of. Did he come over to St Mark's and tell us and... and uh, uh, and uh, how long did it take for the surgical community over on this side of the Atlantic to um, to build on that work? It took wh- yes. it took a while, I'm, didn't I'm it? I'm not aware that he came to St Mark's. Um, I think if he had, I think we'd know about it. Mm. Um, but certainly his idea uh, was extremely influ- influential, but it took a long time, as I've just said, um, for the majority of patients to have the Dixon procedure, rather than the abdominoperineal excision. <clears throat> so bit by bit, anterior section done through the anterior part of the body, i.e. the abdominal cavity, became the standard, except for the ultra-low or the low rectal cancers, where Miles's operation uh, was the alternative for those tumours. Uh, what, what happened after that? Well, one other important um, development... Um, was published in 1948. Um, we're talking about me again. That's a year after I was born. <laughs> and that was um, the contribution of Lloyd Davis, another St. Mark's yes, surgeon. Yes, of course. Um, and still at that stage, um, surgery had to be done as rapidly as possible. Um, you couldn't be a good surgeon who operated slow. Every surgeon had to operate fast. And you had... Fast surgeons that weren't very good and fast surgeons that were excellent. But the speed of the operation was still extremely important because the longer an operation went on, the greater the chance that the patient would develop something that was known as surgical shock. They just lost their blood pressure as if they'd had a big bleed. Um, But they just became very ill after four hours or thereabouts. So um, Lloyd Davis at St Mark's came up with the... uh, brilliant idea if you think about it in retrospect why didn't somebody think about it before and that was um, instead of having the two elements of the operation the abdominal part followed by the perineal part of Miles' operation um, you could cut the operation in half in terms of time by having two surgeons working at both ends and meeting in the middle Um, dr livingstone i presume sort of (laughs) idea and they'd meet in the middle um, and that was a great step forward and decreased the mortality of abdominoperineal excision. And certainly when we were young registrars, that was what we were told to do. And speed and synchronicity, i.e. having two surgeons working together, often the registrar at the bottom end and the consultant at the top, was the standard uh, for, for, you know, in place well, it, of Miles' original description. It was. We never saw uh, a sequential abdominal abdominoperineal excision where one end is done followed by the other so it was absolutely until much later when when it sort of came back with the um you know the the more radical resections done from below and turning the patient um uh it sort of sort of went full circle didn't it Uh, but we're going to talk about that at a later date um and so lloyd davis uh had made this great suggestion which then became standard worldwide I, i presume so dixon in a sense had brought the anterior section to everybody's attention and that became the standard operation for the upper and middle th- third rectal cancers and uh, Lloyd Davis synchronous APAR were, had become the other. Yeah. Well, another very important development came from St Mark's 
And that was not by a surgeon, but by a pathologist who thought surgically. Very important that uh, Cuthbert Dukes was a surgeon monkey. He thought surgically. Um, and he made the extraordinary discovery, has to be called that, that the lymphatic spread from rectal cancer is not radial. It doesn't go um, 360 degrees around the clock. It, he discovered predominantly Keflad. The lymphatic spread was upwards, away from the tumour. And the importance of that was that you didn't need to take as much of the rectum below the tumour. Um, and uh, Dukes and the St Mark surgeons, um, in fact Golliger was the one that worked with him on this, showed that you needed to take no more than two inches, that's in the days when we always talked about inches rather than centimetres, um, so two inches or five centimetres thereabouts was as much as you needed to take or as far as they recognised it and then other surgeons elsewhere in the world um, showed subsequently that you didn't need to take more than two centimetres, not five, but two, which meant that surgeons could operate deeper into the pelvis and take ever lower cancers out. Um, and today, of course, we recognise that so long as the tumour hasn't spread out from the uh, rectum uh, into the surrounding pelvic floor, you can go right down to the bottom of the rectum. But So that all developed as a result of Dukes initially showing that lymphatic spread was kephalad. And he did and that, that with meticulous pathology specimens, and so which we have still lots of pictures here at St Mark's. And he did that over over some years. It took a while to show everybody. Yes. Well, he how had that um, worked. what initially, uh, or somebody was initially known as his lab boy. Um, this was somebody who worked in the laboratory with him at University College Hospital before he came to St Mark's. Um, and uh, Dick Bussey was that lab boy. And he was 17 years old when he started And we both working. remember him well, don't we? <laughs> we yeah. certainly do. He, he worked at St Mark's for almost forever, as it were. And in fact, and ironically, he died in St Mark's in his 80s um, from pancreatic cancer. Um, but he, at the earliest stage, used to produce meticulous drawings of the specimens that the surgeons took out. Um, and, and they were beautiful drawings. I mean, they're works of art yes, um, and extremely uh, individual. Every specimen was drawn individually. And he would mark every lymph node that was in the specimen. They'd all be dissected out by Bussy. Um, and the ones that had tumour in them, as determined by his boss, uh, were coloured in black. Um, and the ones that didn't have tumour in were white. Um, and this was part of the development of the Duke's classification, uh, all the specimens being meticulously dissected um, so that he could then, Dukes that is, come up with his um, predictive classification that gave you an idea of the chance that the patient was, was going to be cured or disease-free at, at uh, five years. And that classification has held sway. Uh, there are, have been plenty of modifications and so on since, but it's still, the basic concept is still so much in our minds when we think about rectal cancer. Let's go on, if we can, for the last few minutes to talk about the other technical advances, advances that led to the low, the ultra-low anti-resection becoming possible. And one of the things that comes to mind, of course, is the staple 
instruments and the uh, the differences that may have made. And we'll be talking in the final episode about laparoscopic techniques and and all the modern things, uh, including the robots and so on, and the and the perineal uh, uh, new perineal approaches to it all. But what about staples and um, the new concepts which came out in the early 70s to help us do the very low anterior resections? Yes. Well, most of the uh, developments in rectal cancer surgery occurred in what we might call the Western world. Um, But extremely interestingly, it was the Russians who first came up with the staple gun. The SPTU gun. I remember it well. And of course, this instrument, uh, which we take so for granted today, was an extraordinary step forward. Um, One thing worth remembering is that it had to be loaded individually between cases. It wasn't thrown away the way we do today, but it was a big chunk of steel. Um, And once it had been uh, uh, cleaned, um, somebody had to sit down with a little pile of staples and load it. So it was pretty tedious, one assumes. And although... um, A lot of surgeons were able to do hand-sewn anastomoses into the deep pelvis. Um, And I used to do that. I I used to see it as a surgical challenge to do deep... It wasn't wasn't always easy, was it? No. And also colo-anal, they could do it from below as well uh, in a a different form. It could. So um, the gun wasn't absolutely necessary uh, in every case. But many surgeons didn't have the specialist uh, skill to go into the deep pelvis for an anastomosis. And that's why, for a lot of surgeons, abdominoperineal excision remained predominant uh, right up into the latter part of the 20th century. Um, And we've got good data uh, showing that some surgeons were doing 80% abdominoperineal excision still in the 1980s and 90s. So we've seen how the staples have helped the technical side, but that's led to the concept of total mesorectal excision, uh, which has been emphasised by Professor Heald. Um, Where does that sit in this story? Well, this is an enormous part of the story. Um, It was actually somewhat controversial when he first described it. Um, But the the basic concept is that the rectum has to be dissected perfectly if you're going to minimise the chance of local recurrence. Um, And although people before healed recognised that there was a plane between the mesorectum um, and the pelvis, or the sacrum predominantly, um, they didn't emphasise it, they didn't evangelise it the way that healed did. Uh, Healed described very clearly in 1982, yet another seminal paper, we've got 1908, We've got 1932, and now we've got 1982. Um, When Heald published um, a description of the technique and some patients in whom he'd performed it, so a meticulous, slow dissection to make sure that the mesorectum and its surrounding mesorectal fascia came out intact. Um, Now, one important thing is that the necessity for speed uh, had somewhat been set aside. You could, you could be a good surgeon who was slow, um, as opposed to just a decade or so before when you had to operate fast. So Heald described uh, this operation, 
which he called total mesorectal excision, or TME. Um, and for most surgeons, it was a slow procedure. And if it had been described 20 years earlier, uh, it would have been a non-starter because it, it can take really quite a long time. Um, before that time, before healed, um, indeed, when we were students and young um, trainees, our bosses used to take a great delight in shoving their hand down behind the rectum, um, literally taking a few seconds from the top end of the rectum down to the pelvic floor and then pushing the rectum forward. And because there was a potential vacuum uh, where they'd done that, there was this extraordinary noise that we all came to know and love, <laughs> know. This, this sucking noise as the rectum was mobilised. Well, Heald set that aside. He showed quite clearly that you had to do this dissection beautifully. Um, and he evangelised it. He went around the world telling surgeons this is what they had to do. Not just telling them, but teaching them how to do it. He would do the operation in hospitals around the world. Um, and you can see how the surgical results changed as uh, surgeons, particularly in Scandinavia uh, and Northern Europe initially, showed that their um, uh, local recurrence rate fell away over a period of a decade usually. Um, so this was an enormous step forward. It wasn't an absolutely new idea, but the key thing that Heald gave us was his evangelism. And uh, when, I, when I say that, people think I'm taking the mickey out of him, you know, St. Bill of Basingstoke. Um, but he did evangelise the way some Christians yeah. evangelise. And I, I draw that parallel very consciously. And he was using, sometimes we can say we... We contributed a little bit at St. Mark's because he was certainly using the St. Mark's uh, retractors deep in the pelvis because I worked with him many times and was his registrar too. So I could he he um, he uh, acknowledged a lot from St. Mark's where he where he uh, had plenty of contact with us and partly trained there. So um, so that's where we are now with this TME, which has become a standard not just for surgeons but also for pathologists. It's sort of gone back on them, hasn't it? That's the way they they measure the, the, how they measure our surgery by how good our specimen is, and we how we measure their their competence as well yes. by how many lymph nodes and and uh, how what dissection and block dissections that uh, they 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 have from these specimens. Yes. Well, when pathologists became as important as they did become. Um, with uh, Dukes coming up with his classification, which allowed prediction of the chance of cure. Um, what happened when TME was developing was that the pathologist could look at the specimen, and in particular whether the mesorectal fascia was intact, um, and uh, tell the surgeon how good his surgery was uh, and what the risk of local recurrence was based purely on that anatomical dissection carried out by the pathologists. Well, thank you very much, John. Although I hate to leave the podcast uh, with the pathologist having the limelight. Um, in fact, it's a story of both pathology and surgeon surgery, and it's a fascinating one. Uh, next, In the next podcast, we'll be looking at some of the new developments, the latest developments in rectal cancer surgery, including the extraordinary uh, ability of the radiologist to give us really detailed images beforehand and the robot to take us forward after that but thank you very much john for what was a great uh, podcast my pleasure